happy Easter Sunday to everybody. Welcome back to Polite Politics. I have Jenny Tayer and Dan Karish with me to talk about the week that was and get a little bit into the week to come. Let's first off, let's start. Jenny Tayer, how are you? How was your week? We're in the middle of Passover here. How was uh, Seder with the family in Houston? We are in the middle of Passover. Um, It was a very interesting Seder, to say the least. Uh, Definitely had a couple people zoom in which was very unconventional and felt weird. I didn't even know. I did the first night. I put on makeup and I wore like what I would normally wear to Seder to try to feel normal, but it still felt really weird. Um, And then like the second Seder, we totally did in our pajamas, which was fun. I mean, I feel like I'm wearing like my outfits every day I'm like wearing my day pajamas and then I change into my night pajamas and I'm just like cycling through just like trash outfits I just feel like I need I need some kind of normal feeling other than just casual clothes I need to go to work <laughs> work pajamas I like it Dan Karish uh how are how are you sir how was uh how was everything and uh what did you do for Seder happy to be here Noah very excited to be back for my third uh, straight week. I had a great first two Passover seders. We did a uh, Zoom seder similarly, and I really have to thank my marvelous girlfriend Jesse, who helped cook all of the meals, helped set up all the seders, make sure that uh, everything went about as smoothly as possible. So she really, really put the uh, put the team on her back and carried us through. Appreciate a good shout out, Jesse. Shout out to her. Uh, fantastic job uh, that she did this past week. My family did a, a Google Hangout, uh, so it was uh, my mom, my twin sister, and my uh, older brother, so we did that for about uh, two hours there on Wednesday night. I mean, we were all over the place. I'm here, obviously, in D.C., my brother's in uh, in Atlanta, kind of more sub- you know, suburbs. My mom is in the city proper, and my twin sister is out in L.A., so we were able to kind of get a, a very interesting coast-to-coast representation there for, for the Seder. And by the way, Jenny, this is our 10th edition of polite politics we've made it to episode 10 of the podcast we want to get into obviously our main story guys is COVID 19 and where we are we have seen now unfortunately the daily death toll uh is has crept over 2000 so we lost over 2000 people in a day from uh COVID 19 but the modeling shows that obviously the steps that we've taken and even though you know many obviously correctly were saying that we took it too late those social distancing guidelines and those steps and the things that people are doing in the different states that are really enforcing those has really lowered what the potential loss of life could be. Now, obviously, we have to stay vigilant. It's, you know, we don't want to lift those guidelines too soon. But Dan, you know, Dan Karish, we'll start with you for, you know, what we're seeing now. Do you feel like there is maybe a any kind of optimism, even though we're, we're still a long ways to go, but seeing the positive effect of saying we, we saved a lot of lives by doing this, do you think there's any kind of more optimism you know, here going forward? I absolutely think that there is and there should be a lot of optimism going forward. It's very challenging when you hear these numbers um, that we're getting 2,000 people dying, that we're, we, we've crept up over, I think it's over a million uh, cases worldwide, but we also have to remember how many people are surviving this. We still see a very large, I think it's larger than 97% survival rate, and it's um, it's something to continue monitoring, but we also have to realize that we are taking steps that are necessary and on our own uh, individually by 
keeping social distance, by wearing face masks, by limiting where we're going out, that we've said, hey, we have all taken a role in reducing uh, and flattening the curve and protecting each other and ourselves. And I think that's something to be proud of. And I think that's something to carry forward. Jenny, it looks like the Trump administration is is not taking the lead necessarily on saying what states should do. They're, they're kind of leaving it more up. Now, obviously, there are guidances and they are at the forefront of passing these uh, economic rescue packages and the, a new stimulus bill, which I'm sure we will see either next week or in the week after that. But it seems that Trump is really leaving it up to the states and localities. And it's interesting, I think, because there are probably a lot of Americans that would like to see a forceful response and leadership from the president. But the president seems to not be, I don't want to say abdicating, but really giving more control and more power to the states and localities who know their own areas better than he does. What do you think of that strategy? And do you think that people are are perhaps misguided in saying, you know what, the president should be taking the lead on this? I think he's following the system that we've always had and not deviating just because we're in a crisis, right? We live in a system of federalism. So it is important that governors and state and local officials make decisions for their people because they do know what's best, like you said. And I think in this case, there's also not a blanket um, kind of coronavirus diagnosis for each, you know, for the entire country, but for each state, there's its own curve and its own trend of cases, death tolls, and recovered patients that has to be taken into account by each um, state and city. And I think he's following that, but he's also taking his role as someone who's informing the people. He's out there every day. We see his press conferences. He's also making sure that each governor is granted what they need. So they still are communicating. There's still that channel um, where if a governor says, you know, we need more ventilators, he says, okay, well, let's look at the national stockpile and let's get you some. And I think he's done that this week. I know he granted some to Arizona. I know yesterday he applauded um, the governor of California. And so that's been kind of his role is more of, okay, let me let you handle this. And if you need something from the national level, you come to me. And then he keeps everyone informed on on the national trend. One of the things you talked about in terms of informing people, we do know that he's out there almost every day with the briefings that he that he has. Although some of those informations, as as we talked about, you know, in previous podcasts, some of those statements have had to be corrected. When it comes to the national stockpile, because that's not something that we've really talked about too much on the podcast. Areas, especially like Jenny, the one that you you know, and, and Dan, the one that we're in here in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. Uh, they were only granted a fraction of what they asked for from the national stockpile. And whether that's because the peak dates are later and the peak death rates for this area are supposed to be in May as opposed to right now like New York is going through. But Florida, which hadn't taken some of those steps, got 100% of what they asked for both times from the national stockpile. Governor Larry Hogan is, you know, the the chair of kind of the the governors association, so he represents all of these governors. Is there a possible way to kind of make everybody happy with the national stockpile? Because it seems like some people are getting what they ask for, and others aren't getting nearly enough. 
The last I heard was that there's about 9,000 ventilators in the national stockpile. Now, I'm not sure what the method is that the Trump administration is using to allocate that um, that stock. So I can't really comment on it because I don't know what, what methods they're using and I'm not sure they've talked about that. It seems like it's different for every place. Like you said, depending on, I'm sure there's an assessment on what states have the most at-risk populations possibly. I know, for example, Florida, there's definitely a huge elderly population. And so it's possible that played a role. I can only speculate at this point. I'm not really sure what their their checklist is for that. Dan, I want to move it over to you because something we talked about before the podcast started was that we see states and governors are competing for the same supplies, these ventilators and PPE and things like that. And oftentimes they're going to the same companies to try to fill out these orders. And basically without the federal government stepping in maybe as that buyer, it's forcing states to compete against one another and the federal government as well. And so I think what we're seeing is market forces are basically driving up the price and making it more and more and more expensive as these states try to save lives. You know, our system is is a capitalist system, it is a market-based system, and these are typically market forces that we that we want and encourage. But in this scenario, do you think maybe it should be more of a central role, government buys everything and then distributes, or do you think this is just the best way to, to go because the market system typically is the best way to go, even though it is driving up the cost of saving lives? Right, and this is a point that President Trump has made frequently in his uh, his daily press briefings, along with other comments about the economy, you know, especially reopening the United States, reviving the economy. But really, you know, the only way to revive the economy is to end the, this pandemic. And the way to end this pandemic is we have to have serious mobilization of our industries, of our bureaucracy, our administrative state. And that includes uh, more testing, that includes more production of ventilators, more production of masks. It's something that, again, we need to see this leadership from the top down. If that requires uh, the Trump administration to directly purchase and then distribute the ventilators in order to accelerate this mobilization or to accelerate uh, ending the pandemic, that's a step that I think that they need to take. For the testing element, Jenny, I mean, we're we're still seeing a lag in the testing and and what's available and, and who's able to get tested. You know, what are you hearing as far as when testing will be made much, much more available? Well, I think the latest was a very important advancement, which is the antibody test, which would tell a patient if he or she had previously had the virus and had recovered, giving them some immunity. Now, we don't know how long the immunity lasts. You know, every year you have to get a flu shot. So that would also play a role in in the vaccine debate. But I think that's a huge advancement, and Dr. Fauci talked about that this week and said hopefully within a week or so that we would get more of that. Also, like you said, there's been minimal testing. I think I I would advocate for random sampling, like many countries have done, that have seen a shorter amount of time of flattening the curve. I think that's really important because we have kind of sleeper cells of this virus walking around the country, people who have had it but can spread it. 
and they don't know that. Um, and so that's really important. But also, I think the antibody testing is huge and critical. Yeah, you know, Jenny makes a really interesting point there about having these uh, almost sleeper cells of, of individuals who are infected, um, but don't necessarily know it or who are asymptomatic. Something I think to track with the coming fourth stimulus package is what kind of funding will be included for clinical testing and clinical research, not only for uh, vaccines and not only for drugs related to coronavirus, but for potentially building up the infrastructure necessary to stemming future pandemics. You know, this is something that we don't want to become a recurring trend that we have to shut down the economy. If there's a lesson that can be learned here, it may very well be that we need to really reinforce and expand our clinical and research lab testing facilities as a country in order to maintain a competitive edge over not only over different diseases, but over other countries um, who are likely to spread diseases as well. That's a great point, Dan. And I'm, I'm sure that there are a lot of different lessons that we certainly can take away from from what has happened here in, in the pandemic. I want to move from from that to, to something that uh, Dr. Fauci said in terms of uh, the idea of reopening schools would then, you know, kind of potentially uh, put children at risk for infection. And then obviously this past week was Masters Week or when the Masters would have been played in Augusta, Georgia, there at Augusta National. And that's obviously such a huge thing for the spring, would have been the end of the Final Four. Sports has played such a, an important role in American life, the life of, of the globe, really. And for Americans, it seems like sports is one of those things that would give us some sense of normalcy. My question to you, Dan, is when it looks like we are past maybe some of the phase of the pandemic, whether that's in the summer or fall, do you think that people will feel comfortable enough to go out and watch sports in large groups in bars or at games and, and, and put, you know, fill arenas if we don't have a vaccine on the market? And I ask that because apparently you know, the reports that we're seeing say that a vaccine probably won't come around until next year. Yeah, you know, you ask a really good question. I, uh, you know, I spent yesterday watching the Masters round four from, I think it was 2004 when Phil Mickelson uh, lefty won. And, you know, I, I remembered thinking how incredible the environment is at being in a sporting arena or being, you know, with a lot of other fans who are also very in, invested in the game and very excited about it. But at the same time, I, have, I, I remember back to the best place to watch a football game, a basketball game, almost always is from your couch. You know, you can go easily to the bathroom, not having to wait in a line. You have whatever food you want already in your fridge, and you save a lot of money. It'll be interesting to see what kinds of new technologies and what kind of new interactive or immersive experiences come from this as people want maybe VR, virtual reality uh, abilities to watch sports. We'll see what kind of, you know... If, if stadiums shrink, if there's more types of interactions at the stadiums, what kind of offerings teams will have to get to give in order to get fans back? Well, we've seen NBA, they, they've gone to an online uh, tournament for NBA 2K where they're playing online so people can stream that. They've seen for NASCAR, there is a kind of a, a, you know, almost like a simulator that the people are trying for golf. You know, there are golf simulators. I'm sure that they could probably stream or, or hook something up to, to create kind of a competitive one-on-one -on -one situation where you'd see golfers go head-to-head -head. so I think online gaming is something that you know people were seeing with Overwatch League and, and other kind of online esports 
that I think has has kind of maintained popularity because you don't have to you can stream it from all of these places like Twitch. Right, exactly. And how this affects gambling in the betting industry, you know, you think a lot of states recently within the past year legalized sports gambling. That's a huge multi-billion dollar industry. How is that going to affect the casinos? How is that going to affect uh, that aspect of sports as well? This is the first time that Vegas is getting crushed for something that's not gambling because uh, typically, you know, they're they're raking in money. But tourism is so important for that city and with people not going and not wanting to congregate and all of these shows and casinos and, and the gambling that goes on there, it, it, they are really taking a huge beating financially because it is such a, a tourism-heavy city. I want to move on. We were talking about packing arenas, so I'm going to, I'm going to segue from that to uh, political conventions and rallies that are not taking place right now. Jenny, huge news. Bernie Sanders has dropped out of the race to become the Democratic nominee for president in 2020. I mean, Jenny, this was... I guess a coronation of sorts, perhaps. A, 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 I mean, it was a long road for for Joe Biden to to get it, but the guy who started the race as the front runner is now the only one left standing. Right. Well, and one thing that I caught when Sanders announced the suspension of his campaign was that he is still collecting delegates in the states where he remains on the ballot. And so there is going to be some kind of rallying for him at the convention, whether it be, you know, at this date later in the summer, I believe they've delayed it to, you know, I think it's part of his revolution. It's gained a lot of traction with young people and it'll be interesting to see, although we know that Joe is going to be the nominee and that is going to be kind of I see it as a win for Trump and I think a lot of people see that even a lot of mainstream Democrats you know some some of my family are Democrats and I've talked to them and they are just so upset they were total Bernie supporters and they don't have any hope in Joe Biden and um, I think that's you know a lot of my friends who are in their 20s feel the same way so it'll be interesting. I know that this week uh, Biden um, kind of had an olive branch moment with Trump and they had a conversation via phone. Um, we're not sure all the details of that phone call, but it was about coronavirus and about the nation's response. So maybe we'll hear more about that. That's very interesting. And, and thank you, Jenny, for sharing you know, some of, of what your, your friends and family are saying to give us kind of an insight as to you know, how different people are feeling. I think sometimes there can be a disconnect between, you know, some of the younger uh, supporters for Bernie Sanders and their experiences versus the experience of other generations. And, and there is that disconnect. But there's always been that disconnect between the young and old, you know, like when rock music first came out, you know, they, people thought it was you know this dangerous thing uh, for kids. So it's interesting to see that. And, and Jenny, I'll stay with you here because you talked about Bernie continuing to try to keep the delegates that he has and amass more delegates. What kind of leverage do you think that will give him in terms of, because you, we know he has very passionate supporters, what kind of leverage does that give him in terms of not completely transforming but altering the Democratic Party platform and Biden's positions on a number of issues? Uh, you know, Do you think he's going to be able to get him to tack towards more towards the left on some issues, you know, predominant. I mean, Joe Biden will never be a Medicare for all guy, but do you think he's going to be able to get him to move a little more to the left on some of these issues? 
I truly don't know. I'm not a pollster and I'm not, you know, I'm not some, I'm not someone who knows much about how he's going to play out, especially right now. I just think it's such an unprecedented time. I don't really know because all of these states are not going to be as predictable as they were in the last election. And everything's kind of taking a different um, way of voting or a different outlook on this, on the world now that we have a global pandemic that we're dealing with. Bernie Sanders may actually be able to co-opt a little bit of Joe Biden and that you look at the mainstream Democratic platform right now and see what types of policies have somewhat come from what Bernie Sanders has said. We look at even if there's no Medicare for all, we see that Joe Biden's touting a public option of some sort. We see even though the Green New Deal isn't going isn't 100% there. We're seeing some sort of environmental activism on the left. A lot of the Bernie Sanders type policies are being mainstreamed ever so slightly. And I think he's staying at least relevant right now, even if he's suspending his campaign, because he's able to co-opt wide swaths of the Democratic Party. You know, you look at one of the largest caucuses is the Progressive Caucus, which is led by these far left of center uh, members of Congress. He maintains tremendous influence within the party, even though he remains on the outskirts. And I think one other interesting point to to note was Wisconsin, how they did this. They had this debate of vote by mail versus in-person voting. One of the problems that they faced was that they didn't have a lot of time to circulate mail-in ballots. It was a very fast, within a couple days, if not a couple weeks, that they had to turn around and determine how are we going to hold this primary election. We have this kind of time now ahead of the no, the November uh, presidential election that we can determine if we cannot have in-person voting, what types of procedures and what types of precautions against ballot fraud and other voting by mail issues, what kind of precautions can we take to ensure that citizens are able to maintain and uphold their duty of, of voting? We want engaged and active voters, and that's what makes uh, this country competitive and better is by having active voters. And I think one of the things that we saw is even people will take the risk, you know, with with the kind of poll lines that we saw in Wisconsin. I think other primaries are going to move exclusively to mail-in, but people will, you know, it's, it's something that I think a lot of people take for granted is the ability that we have to go and vote. And we see in other countries, you know, despite threats of violence and all of these other things that people go and stand in the polls, you know, lines for hours. And that's what we saw in Wisconsin is people, even though there was a risk to their health, they went ahead and they went to the uh, the polls because they wanted to exercise their right to vote. I want to move on from kind of the co-opting, which Dan, I definitely agree. I think, you know, Joe Biden, you know, almost some of it is, is not even kind of his choice. It's already happening that some of the Democratic Party is, has had to accept some of these different things, although Nancy Pelosi definitely in the House doesn't want these widespread because she understands that in a lot of these battleground states, having kind of too extreme a position could could end up losing them a lot of seats, and then in that case, the majority. But I think Joe Biden will certainly have to co-opt some of those, as, as you said. So that leaves us kind of to, to Jenny, what you talked about in terms of the legacy of, of Bernie Sanders. So obviously, I think this is probably the end of his presidential run i don't i don't see him trying to you know run again you know maybe four years from now um especially if joe biden wins but you know we have this incredible legacy of a person who spent so much time in the senate and has now really 
continue to make this huge change on the Democratic Party. What do you see his legacy turning out as? And obviously that's far down the road, but do you see his legacy having a lasting impact on the Democratic Party and on the country as a whole? I give him a lot of credit. He really has a lot of passion, like we said, for his movement. And I think his followers echo that. And, you know, we'll see. I think that there could be someone who takes his message and and runs in the next election as kind of a Bernie-like candidate. I could definitely see that. Um, Who knows? He could run again. It's possible. I, I definitely think he's, he's obviously, I, if he decides to run for Senate again for his next election, I think he'll, you know, he's a solid chance. I mean, he's one of the most popular politicians in the country. He does fashion himself an independent and certainly is not afraid to speak out against either party. Uh, Dan, is, for me, I think one of his biggest contributions won't just be his kind of anti-establishment message and, you know, kind of what he talks about against the banks and other things like that and consumer protection and helping the little guy because he's definitely been pro-labor when you look at it i mean do we have to also acknowledge the just the groundbreaking way that he did kind of you know he and president trump really with a lot of small donors and getting just a lot just millions and millions of people to contribute with small dollar donations yeah i think that both uh, president trump and and bernie sanders have kind of revolutionized the way that a lot of Main Street Americans are able to engage and become active in politics in in a variety of ways. I think that the legacy that Bernie Sanders will have, regardless of if he runs again for a Senate seat, if he makes another presidential election, it's going to be a long-lasting legacy. It's a rather abrupt ending for his presidential campaign. He, you know, likely faded a little bit going down as with the. Uh, rise of coronavirus. He wasn't able to gather people in arenas, as we talked about. He had a previous medical condition where he had a heart attack recently. It's a rather abrupt ending with no immediate heir apparent for his uh, for his platform. But I think what he has done is he's infused the left ends of the Democratic Party with younger um, active voices and younger money-raising voices that are going to become a very powerful arm in the next decade or two. Definitely a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of activism, and uh, certainly I think he's he's inspired something and, and touched something within a lot of people, especially young people, as you said. Want to uh, to move on to uh, our our uplifting stories of the week? I saw something uh, today. Uh, it was kind of as a New York Times piece. There was a profile of the uh, Lieutenant Governor of Washington State. His name is Cyrus Habib, and he had cancer when he was young and they had to remove both of his retinas so he was blind uh from from the age of being a child and and he he used to say one of the the kind of things he used to say was from braille to yale you know yale educated then became the lieutenant governor of the state of washington second to jay Inslee, and he said that he was talking to an agent in new york about this big book deal and people, you know, kind of saying all these great things about him. He was a shoe in to be reelected. And if, if Joe Biden wins and Jay Inslee took a, a job within the Biden administration, then Habib would become governor. But what he has decided to do, as I read in, in, in this piece, he has decided to become a Jesuit priest, a Roman Catholic priest in the Jesuit order. And that takes about 10 years for ordination. And basically the, the headline for the article was that a politician takes sledgehammer to his own ego because what he said was all of these things were distracting him from public service 
and the Jesuit order has vows of obedience and poverty as well as chastity. So it was a really impressive thing from Cyrus Habib, who is an Iranian-American, to say, I want to serve people, and I want to do so in a way that keeps me humble, in a way that keeps me doing what is right and the things that I love without kind of this, you know, temptation of money and power and, and I thought that was just an incredible incredible story uh, want to move on now to our final thoughts for the week that was and the week to come Jenny Tayer we will start with you well I think we're somewhat reaching a light at the end of the tunnel I'm hoping I try to stay positive about it I know here in Texas the governor is working on a plan to reopen some businesses. We'll see what that looks like. Maybe it will be a model for the rest of the country and other cities and states. Um, and I, I just, I'm trying to stay positive and I hope we all are. I know this was a really rough re- week and we were warned about it and we were prepared for it. And um, thank God we're seeing some signs of hope. So hoping to just keep that mentality. It's a great way to look at it. Dan, how about you? You know, one of the things that I've been tracking lately are developments within the U.S. Navy, especially with the uh, captain being relieved and the acting secretary of the Navy being uh, dismissed as well, taking a look at how our Navy is preparing uh, and handling coronavirus. You know, if all of a sudden we see this wider rate of infection among sailors in the 5th Fleet in the Persian Gulf or the 7th Fleet off Japan and we had to all of a sudden scale back our naval presence in these regions, how does that affect trade? How does that affect China's uh, military and activist approach in the South China Sea among other geographies? You know, if we, with with these stimulus bills uh, that are taking huge sums of money, are these going to diminish the amount of money that we can spend on naval R&D and on maintenance of these ships, both of which are incredibly expensive. So these are some of the, the questions that will need to be answered, I think, going forward by our government as we continue to spend money, um, which in many ways I think is very important for the Main Street small businesses and for families, but it will be important to see how a retrenchment of our military affects uh, our global standing. That's a great point, Dan, because you know not only is this virus weakening us currently at home, but it also potentially has, has the ability to weaken us abroad and many of the things that we do in the Persian Gulf that heads off many uh, bad actors, we'll say, in those regions, as well as China, when we're trying to protect our allies and friends in the region against China's kind of interventionist approach, uh, as they encroach and encroach and encroach and, and kind of try to build their own way, uh, as well as they've done, obviously, in Africa that we've seen with a lot of the uh, investments that they've made there, is something that obviously is, is to look at. And I think you're, you're right to bring that up, because it's not something that people are thinking about right now. They're concerned about the over 16 million people that have filed for unemployment, and and that will continue to go up. We are going to cross that 20 million people filing for unemployment. Something that I've been looking at this week, obviously, is hope that we've had from you know Passover and the just the themes of redemption and renewal and gratitude and freedom. And we're feeling those even more so now, obviously, with with our freedom being somewhat restricted, being inside, feeling trapped a little bit. But then there is that redemption, that hope of of what happens next, Jenny, as you refer alluded to, kind of with the light at the end of the of the tunnel. And then Easter Sunday, which is you know so important to so many around the globe, and and not and being disconnected from the physical church, but also being connected at the same time through Zoom and other you know things, video conferencing, and all of these different things that are able to bring these people together in unison, in harmony. I think 
Bernie Sanders being out is something that's a huge thing, obviously, for the, the primary now, as we see. I'm sure Joe Biden will pivot now to the general. What I am interested to see is when President Obama then decides to put more of his stamp on the race and go out and try to lead people, whether he can assemble that coalition that led him to victory twice, whether he can pick up the enthusiasm of young voters, because I think a lot of those those Bernie supporters were very skeptical and critical of many aspects of the Obama administration, which obviously Joe Biden, very you know, being the vice president, very much a part of. So it's going to be interesting to see whether or not he can engender that enthusiasm if we're not getting a full-throated endorsement from Bernie Sanders. So that is something that I will definitely be keeping an eye on as we continue to have primaries and the political process continues to roll on. But Jenny, so important what you said in terms of keeping our enthusiasm and our our hope alive during these times. Is you know we're, we shouldn't just be you know kind of closing our eyes, hoping just like please let me get to the next day. We want to obviously continue to improve and reach out and connect with our family and our friends and make sure that we're all doing okay. For Noah Niederhofer, Jenny Tayer, Dan Karish, Polite Politics, episode 10. Can't believe we've uh, we've made it 10, and here's to the next 10 that we have. Thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next time.